podcast, Faster Than the Hurricane, Slower Than an Asteroid, with George Bendo, Claire Brotherton, Ian Harrison, Fiona Healy, Ian Morrison, and Jean-Francois Robitaille. The Jodcast, September 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George and joining me in the studio today is Fiona. Hi, George. Hello. In the show this time, Jean-Francois interviews Dr. Jason McEwen about the future of radio interferometric imaging, and Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. Unfortunately, even though Ian Harrison wrote the news, he was unavailable to read it. Instead, it will be read by me. Here you go. In the news this month... More gravitational wave rumours, Voyager celebrates 40 years in space, and an amazing new image of Antares. A new set of rumours appeared this month, with many suggesting that an important new discovery has been made in the field of gravitational wave astronomy. The two gravitational wave events so far confirmed by the LIGO team have been hugely important, but both apparently come from only one of the potential classes of gravitational wave events, that of black hole-black hole collisions. The potential new discovery is an entirely new type of event, gravitational waves from a collision involving a neutron star. Black hole-black hole collisions are extremely violent events, but depending on how much other matter is in the vicinity, they may be expected to stay dark, releasing no flash visible in the electromagnetic spectrum. However, neutron stars, remnants of large stars consisting solely of neutrons held apart by the Pauli exclusion principle, are both small and dense enough to produce an appreciable gravitational wave signal, but are also expected to be far more likely to produce emission visible in the electromagnetic spectrum by more traditional telescopes. These flashes, often referred to as optical counterparts, can still be difficult to associate with gravitational wave events, as LIGO's interferometers are very poor at working out which direction a gravitational wave has come from. This can be helped, however, by detecting gravitational waves in multiple detectors placed around the world, allowing the source's origin to be triangulated. The recent addition of the newly upgraded Virgo gravitational wave interferometer to LIGO's arsenal means the collaboration can now do just that and provide a much smaller region of the sky for the small army of electromagnetic telescopes across the spectrum, which give up some of their time to respond quickly to gravitational wave detections, spin round, and look for optical counterparts in that part of the sky. After a tweet from J. Craig Wheeler of the University of Texas on the 18th of August, reading, New LIGO source with optical counterpart, blow your socks off, that's socks with an X, intrepid astronomers did some digging and appeared to find exactly this process taking place. The Hubble, DECAM and VLT optical and infrared telescopes, Chandra X-ray telescope, Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope and Alma Submillimeter Telescope all appear to have made observations in the same direction at some point in the period from the 18th to the 22nd of August, in the direction of the galaxy NGC 4993, some 40 megaparsecs away. This appears to fit with what would be expected for a coincident detection of a gamma ray burst and gravitational wave event, expected from a collision of two neutron stars. In addition, several of the observations have suspicious-looking public names, the Hubble observation being labelled as BNS merger, 
BNS being a common acronym for Binary Neutron Star. There has currently been no official statement on the rumour from the LIGO and Virgo collaboration, who did release this statement on the 25th of August, to coincide with the end of their most recent period of science observations. Some promising gravitational wave candidates have been identified in data from both LIGO and Virgo during our preliminary analysis, and we have shared what we currently know with astronomical observing partners. We are working hard to assure that the candidates are valid gravitational wave events, and it will require time to establish the level of confidence needed to bring any results to the scientific community and the greater public. We will let you know as soon as we have information ready to share. Jake Craig Wheeler also tweeted again on the 23rd of August with a mea culpa, apologising for the earlier tweet and stating LIGO deserves to announce when they deem appropriate. If an announcement is made soon, it will be a fantastic next step in the opening up of gravitational waves as a way to observe the universe. Also in the news this month were the celebrations of the 40th anniversary of the launches of the two Voyager spacecraft. Launched on the 20th of August and 5th of September 1977 by NASA, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have been pioneering in unique missions to the outer solar system. In the intervening decades to the Voyager probes, carrying their famous gold disc records of information about life on Earth for any potential extraterrestrial life to find, have sent back a wealth of information and awe-inspiring images of our solar system. In 1979, Voyager 1, which was actually the second of the two to be launched, sent back pictures of Jupiter, settling a centuries-long argument about the direction of spin of the Great Red Spot storm. The probe then moved on to the moons, including Io, where the first volcanoes outside of Earth were discovered. In the 80s, the first, and so far only, visits to the outer giant ice planets of Uranus and Neptune were made by Voyager 2, who discovered that Uranus is spinning on its side, and Neptune has its own giant storm with 2,500 mile per hour winds. By 1990, both probes had been directed up and out of the ecliptic plane of the solar system, allowing them to send back a family portrait of all the planets in the solar system as seen from above, including the famous pale blue dot image of Earth from 6 billion kilometres away. The two probes have since become famous for being so far away, including continual chatter about exactly where the edge of our solar system should be defined and exactly when the probes can be said to have left. What is known for sure is that they are both still communicating with us, with measured distance of 2.08 by 10 to the 10 kilometres and 1.72 by 10 to the 10 kilometres as of July 2017. Since last year, the gyroscopes have been turned off and we can no longer control the path of the probes, and science instruments will gradually be shut off over the next five years, with the final communications expected to happen sometime between 2025 and 2030. And finally, a new image of the star Antares was revealed this month, which shows the most detailed picture ever seen of a star other than the Sun. Astronomers from the European Southern Observatory captured this image of Antares by using the Very Large Telescope Interferometer, or VLTI, located in Chile. Antares is a red supergiant star in the constellation of Scorpius, 550 light-years away, and was imaged by the team to a resolution of about 5 milliarc seconds, that is 1 over 360,000 times the diameter of the moon and the sky. The astronomers did not just make a pretty picture. By making the images at multiple infrared wavelengths, they were able to make a map of speeds of gases flowing around the star, an important step in understanding the unexpectedly turbulent motions of an old and dying star like Antares.
And now, Jean-Francois Robitaille interviews Dr. Jason McEwen about radio interferometric imaging. Hi, I'm Jean-Francois Robitaille from General Bank Observatory. Uh, today, we have the pleasure to have the visit of Jason McEwen uh, from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, the MSSL. Uh, Jason is a specialist in uh, sophisticated multiscale analysis technique applied in astrophysics. So, Jason, can you introduce your work a little bit? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks. Uh, happy, very happy to be here. Uh, so, yes, I'm a, I'm a researcher, a lecturer at uh, MSSL, the Smaller Space Science Laboratory at, at UCL, uh, just outside of London. So I do a lot of work in what people commonly call astrostatistics and more recently also astroinformatics. And so the idea of these fields is to really lean on uh, techniques developed in statistics or mathematics or computer science and how we can use these kind of techniques to pull information out of large and complex astrophysical observations and, and data sets. So really trying to use these techniques to get new scientific insights from these, these types of observations. I believe that you're planning to uh, apply this, um, these techniques to uh, the future SK. Is that right? Yes, indeed. So we've been working on uh, various types of statistical and mathematical analysis techniques uh, in many areas of, of astrophysics, uh, the SKA, one, one particular notable example. So there we've been using uh, techniques called wavelets, which are a particular type of, of mathematical analysis tool. Uh, quite topical at the moment because uh, one of the pioneers of, of wavelet theory was recently awarded what's called the Abel Prize, which is essentially a kind of Nobel Prize for mathematics uh, uh, awarded um, by by Norway. So Eve Meyer was one of these early pioneers of of wavelet uh, theory in the in the seventies uh, and eighties, uh, developing these complex mathematical analysis techniques to essentially pull structure out of out of data. So wavelets, for example, were used in image processing, the JPEG two thousand uh, standard for compressing your your typical digital images. Uh, uses wavelets at, at the heart of it. So we've been using wavelets uh, to study various types of physical signals uh, from looking at the, what's called the cosmic microwave background, the relic radiation from the Big Bang, through to various different epochs uh, in the evolution of the, the universe, looking at dark matter and, and dark energy in the in the more recent evolution of the universe. And the thing I'd like to talk about today is, is using these kind of techniques to access uh, the image that are made from large radio telescopes. So these large radio telescopes, like the Square Kilometre Array or the, the SKA, uh, don't directly measure an image on the sky. They, they collect raw data, and from that raw data, we need to do a lot of processing to recover the actual image of what we're looking at on, on the sky. Basically, synthesizing a single telescope from lots of separate telescopes. So radio telescopes are comprised of lots of different uh, dishes or an antenna, and we have to model them in such a way to kind of synthesize one very large telescope. This is how we get really high-resolution observations today. And this is the mode of operation of, of the SKA. So these data processing challenges are, are, are very significant, in particular for the SKA to scale up to the huge data rates that, mm. that we expect. So for SKA, the data rate is going to be something similar to the amount of global internet traffic that we have today. Uh, and SKA, you know, should start 
coming online around 2020 or the early 2020s. So we really need to urgently prepare for these huge volumes of data that we're collecting and develop uh, robust and efficient methods for recovering images from these telescopes. So we've been working on uh, developing techniques that build on top of wavelet approaches with theory called compressive sensing. And so we've been developing compressive sensing techniques to recover images from radio telescopes like the SKA in preparation for the SKA when it arrives. So one particular thing we've been focusing on is not only making sure we get the best quality images possible, but also ensuring that we can handle these really huge data rates uh, of the SKA. And the way we're doing that is designing our algorithms such that we can really exploit really distributed and, and paralyzed computing infrastructure that it is now becoming available. Okay, and um, as I understand it, the um, the wavelets can help you with the sparsity of the data that will be collected by the SK as well? Yes, ex exactly. So when we recover, uh, try and recover images from these observations, we actually don't have all the information we need to, to get an image out. And there are lots of possible images that could uh, that could describe the, the observations that we make. And so we typically have to put in some additional um, assumptions about what are, are our standard types of astronomical images. And with astronomical images, as with digital images, it turns out that often these uh, types of images can be represented in a sparse manner in a wavelet representation. Okay. And that really just means that in this wavelet representation, many of the the pixels of the image, if you like, are zero. And so we only have a few non-zero pixels, which gives us a way uh, to, to really impose some kind of structure on, on these images and make sure we get very good quality images out of radio telescopes like the SKA. One other thing that we're focusing on is how to combine these wavelet and compressed sensing approaches with a statistical interpretation. So historically, we get images out of these huge radio telescopes, and we use these to do scientific studies. But we don't really know how accurate these images are at this stage. We don't have any information about the flux level that we measure in an individual pixel, for example. How accurate is that? Current methods don't capture that. So we've also been trying to link together these different fields of astrostatistics on one hand and astroinformatics on the other hand to combine informatics and statistical approaches so that we can get some idea of the errors or the uncertainty uh, on the images that we get out of these radio telescopes. So we want to do things like look at structure in an image and try and ascertain is that physical object on the sky or is that some artifact uh, of of the observational process. And we want to make precise statistical statements so we can be confident that we're looking at physically meaningful structure. So this is another thing that we've we've been working on recently. Okay, so that's very interesting. It's not only for reconstructing your image from the multiple telescopes that the, the, the SK represent, but also it allows you to to measure the the yeah, like you said, the confidence or the, the, the structures itself. Exactly. And this is becoming increasingly important because I've heard cases in the past where um, some theoretician had an exotic new type of model of some physical phenomenon. And yeah. in this case, it was some model of how supernova explode. And they looked at some of these 
images out of radio telescopes, and they saw these uh, concentric circles, which they thought could have been multiple explosions of, of a supernova. This would be very strange. We, we don't have, uh, you know, we, we've never seen this type of event before. But uh, this particular researcher had a, a theory that could describe how that process could happen. So they were very excited. They wrote a, a paper up about this over the weekend as soon as they got these results. Then they came in next week to speak to their colleagues. And actually, someone who works with these types of data sets all the time told them that actually, this is just an artifact of, of the reconstruction process. So fortunately, in that case, uh, you know, these two people spoke together and, and it was realized that this wasn't physically meaningful structure. But really, we can't rely on those types of interactions in the future. We're going to have such huge data sets doing very complicated scientific analyses. Uh, we really need to have an automated, robust way of, of doing this full, full scientific analysis. Uh, and this is the, the type of approach that we're, we're working towards for the SKA and other radio telescopes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your visit. Thank you. Thanks for that, Jean-François. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So one of the things which caught my attention very recently, and uh, which is actually still an issue as we're recording this, is the fallout from Hurricane Harvey. Right. If people have not been following the news that closely, a hurricane hit the Texas coast. Uh, this week, it decreased in strength slightly. It was originally a Category 3 hurricane that decreased in strength to a tropical storm. Mm -hmm. But then, because of the way that high-pressure systems were arranged across the United States, the tropical storm got stuck over the coast of Texas and it dumped huge amounts of rain on the coast of Texas. And if you read news articles about what's been happening with the hurricane slash tropical storm in general, they will point out that a lot of that part of Texas is a low floodplain. The soil is clay, so it doesn't absorb water very much. The area is receiving so much rain that the weather service in the United States has to invent new colors to represent the amount of rainfall. <laughs> on the rainfall radar. Well, in the uh, total rainfall maps. Right. And uh, also the urban planning has been geared more towards growth, not enough towards flood prevention. Right. So all of these factors combined have contributed to huge amounts of flooding uh, in the uh, Texas coastal areas. And one of the important places on the Texas coast in terms of astronomy and space science is the Johnson Space Flight Center. I mean, is that the Johnson Space Flight Center of Houston we have a problem? Yes. Right, okay. <laughs> so so kind of a big deal then. <laughs> it is the place indeed where astronauts in the 1960s and 70s and even today communicate with NASA while they're in flight and it's uh, looking through the history of the Space Flight Center. Uh -huh. The site was originally chosen in the early 1960s uh -huh. when NASA was uh, just beginning to really ramp up its uh, space activities. It was not originally the first choice, actually. The first choice was location in Florida. 
but for whatever reason, the Florida location didn't quite work out, and so they decided to locate in Texas. Right. Actually, southeast of Houston, right on the coast. So actually much closer to the coastline than most of the city, and therefore a much more scary place in terms of hurricanes. Absolutely. And in fact, when they built the facility in the early 1960s, it was following a hurricane uh, which had struck the area uh, relatively recently. There's a there's a building like that in Cork. Well, not as exciting, but it's a it used to be the Greyhound track, and now it's the um, computer science department at the university. Uh, but the reason the Greyhound track left the site was because it was a floodplain, <laughs> and the university bought it, and they said, "I know what we'll do. We'll put a big building with lots of really expensive computers in there instead." And uh, then, of course. About a year later, it completely flooded. <laughs> this is very similar to what happened with the uh, Johnson Space Flight Center is that they put it in a place which is hurricane prone. Mm-hmm. And it's actually uh, uh, not just recently uh, this year, but also in previous years, it has been hit by other hurricanes and other tropical depressions. And it has ridden out those hurricanes and tropical depressions and continue to operate. And, in fact, through the course of hurricane-slash-tropical-storm Harvey dumping lots of rain on Texas, the Johnson Space Flight Center has continued to operate, huh. actually. So, it's in communi- is, does that mean it's in communication with astronauts now? Indeed, one one of the activities that the Space Flight Center is continuing to carry out is communication with the International Space Station. Right, okay. They apparently in the past week have carried out relatively complex docking maneuvers and uh, have had to communicate with people on the ground at the Johnson Space Flight Center. The um, other major activity that's been carried out at the Johnson Space Flight Center during the course of the hurricane slash tropical storm mm-hmm. is testing of the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, no. So that telescope is currently inside a very large vacuum chamber uh-huh. on the site, and it's undergoing a series of tests, which also involve cooling down the telescope using... Uh-huh various cryogens to uh, temperatures I read somewhere around negative 230 degrees Celsius. Oh, goodness. And they have actually continued to carry those tests out during uh, the hurricane slash tropical storm. Now, most of the Johnson Space Flight Center has been relatively unaffected Mm -hmm. by the hurricane or the flooding. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the building with the James Webb Space Telescope did flood, but... It, it was relatively minor, and it did not affect the James Webb Space oh, Telescope. <laughs> I mean, because I think you know, with a with a, with an instrument like that, it wouldn't just be a case of kind of cleaning the gunk off the mirrors and sending it up into space. It would be completely oh, destroyed, well, wouldn't it? Well, it's uh, uh, some of the most complex electronics in the world. Exactly. So imagine uh, taking your smartphone and dunking it in. Um, uh, well, it's actually around the coast, so dunking it in seawater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or well, kind glad. of watered down seawater, maybe. I'm glad they didn't dunk the James Webb telescope in seawater. That's for the best. Well, um, so activities have continued. However, uh, only essential personnel have been at the uh, uh, flight center mm-hmm. on the 25th of August. 
NASA administration decided to send home all non-essential personnel. And so most other activities uh, ceased at the Space Flight Center. And also the Space Flight Center uh, found itself relatively cut off by the flooding. Oh, no. Uh, I think they described themselves as an island. Uh, People (laughs) have been sleeping inside (laughs) uh, the Space Flight Center. Oh, no, that's scary. That must be scary for them. Well, everything that's happening in uh, Texas is relatively scary scary for everybody. Yeah, Yeah, lots of people in Texas have been affected, and the Space Flight Center in Texas has also been affected. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least fortunately for astronomy and space science, not as badly as uh, a lot of other stuff in Texas. Yeah, yeah. I um, I wonder if they did lose communication um if, if communication did break down between the ISS and Houston, I mean, they presumably they have backups, right? They have other places they could speak to instead. I did read up on this, and there is a backup facility in Alabama. Okay. They could always switch communications over to that. Right. And there's also apparently a relatively mobile communication system where uh, people uh, set up some laptops somewhere and actually start communicating with satellites. So um, uh, during one of the previous hurricanes this century, people were apparently communicating from Austin, for example. That's also in Texas, right? That's also in Texas, but further inland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Not with a uh, direct view of the ocean. Yeah. (laughs) Or actually a tidal estuary, but... (laughs) <laughs> uh, still, Johnson Space Flight yeah. Center is right on an estuary. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, is, is that it for your odd and end? That's it for me. Oh, in that case, I will move on to my odd and end, which is uh, not about a hurricane, but an asteroid. Uh, and it's about asteroid 3122 Florence, or just asteroid Florence, which is its catchier name, uh, which is named after Florence Nightingale, the famous nurse. And it's an asteroid that's in an elliptical orbit around the sun, which will be making its closest approach to the Earth uh, today on the day of recording, actually, which is September 1st, although I don't know what day it is that you will be listening to this. But um, it's making its closest approach to the Earth today. So NASA have kind of flagged it as being a potentially dangerous asteroid because of its size, which is about 4.4 kilometers so to put that in perspective, um, the, the asteroid, well, according to my very quick Google search, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was meant to be about 15 kilometers wide. So it's kind of on a comparable scale to that. So even though they flagged it as a danger to the Earth, it's not currently a danger to the Earth because even though it's passing relatively close to us, it is still going to be about 7 million kilometers away, uh, which is 18 times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. So... uh we're quite safe uh, from asteroid Florence. Um, it's so it's the largest object um, to come this close to the Earth since NASA started monitoring such objects. Uh, there's been ones that are closer but smaller, uh, bigger but further away. Um, so it's a uh, it's kind of cool. Um, astronomers are pretty excited because it being kind of close means they can have a good look at it. Um, they're going to be getting radar images of it uh, to try and establish what its surface composition is and even to establish whether or not it has a little moon because some asteroids have little moons which orbit them. Uh, So yeah, and then so any amateur astronomers who have access to small telescopes could also have a look out for it. It's going to be 
passing. So it's going to be visible in the sky sort of all this week and the line that it's traversing sort of goes from from the sort of eastern horizon through the constellations Eculeus and Delphinus, which are two somewhat more obscure ones, as you can tell by my dubious pronunciation. So it's going to be passing through those two small constellations, which um, if you have no clue uh, what or where they are, a good way to spot it would be to find Vega, which is very bright and high overhead at the moment, and then look along the line that connects Vega to the east. Um, so to, um, if you're facing east, the line between the horizon and Vega is roughly the line along which it's going to be traveling uh, or where, where those two constellations are sort of located. So yeah, um, unfortunately it won't be visible um, with binoculars of the naked eye. Uh, it's got a magnitude of about 8.5 and it's, it's tiny. Um, but if you're looking at it with a telescope, you'll see it, uh, I think, moving along very, very slowly. And I think, uh, so there's a website called the Live Telescope. Um, is it Live Telescope? I think so. Um, which has, the Virtual Telescope, that's it. The Virtual Telescope is a website um, that will be having a live stream of this. Uh, so even if you are listening to this after the fact, because more it's happening today, uh, those videos probably will be available and that, that can be kind of nice to look at. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Asteroid Florence. So the next kind of asteroid that has a chance of hitting the Earth uh, won't happen until 2095, and it's got a 1 in 16 chance of hitting the Earth. But it's apparently quite small, so even if that does happen, it's unlikely to pose a threat. I saw looking up this asteroid uh-huh. on the web very quickly that it was discovered in 1981. Yes. It's kind of interesting that the asteroid hasn't passed this close to the Earth until now. Mm. Um, it's got a, a highly eccentric orbit, um, and it sort of completes an orbit once every two years and four months, but it's also tilted, at, I think, at an angle. Um, it, it, it's angle, the angle of inclination of the orbit is not the same as the Earth's around the sun. Um, so I suppose there's a lot of ways they could be kind of missing each other. Well, I think the fact that its uh, orbital period isn't like a nice integer multiple of the yeah. Earth's orbital yeah, period exactly. means that it's not going to be in a resonance yeah. like... Uh, uh, sort of like uh, the way uh, asteroids get cleared out of uh, mm. gaps in yeah. the asteroid belt by Jupiter. Because that's uh, that's how this one has come to us. It, it used to be out in the asteroid belt and got nudged in. Oh, nudged in by Jupiter. It's part of that group. Interesting. Um, which they have a name, don't they? That whole group of asteroids. No, I don't know what the name is. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, yeah it's one of those. No, that's that's interesting that it got nudged into yeah. an orbit which uh, brings it much closer to Earth mm-hmm. than the typical asteroid does. Yeah, and it's also kind of interesting this was only discovered in 1981 if yeah. it's uh, something which is orbiting relatively close. Yeah, yeah, so um, I don't know what, I don't know where it would have been relative to us in 1981. I don't know how far away it was or how it came to be discovered but yeah, no, it's... If it's something on centric orbit, too, this isn't one of the really tough things to find mm-hmm. either because it's uh, it's going to spend a lot of its time kind of like on the opposite side of the yeah. Earth from the yeah. sun. Yeah. So it's a place that's relatively easy to observe. That's true. Unlike uh, sort of like stuff that orbits within the Earth's orbit, which mm-hmm. is kind of the crazier stuff, <laughs> uh, but also the stuff which is uh, more difficult to 
detect, and so mm. you wouldn't have any warning if it crashed into the earth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for example, exploded over Siberia. Yes, yes, yes. Like, uh, oh, what did they call it? Tungus. The Tunguska uh, event, and yeah. uh, like the uh, explosion just a couple of years ago, in fact. Oh, the dash cam one. Well, it was definitely dash cams, lots of different cameras. Yeah, that's what I remember about that whole incident was thinking, wow, everyone in Russia has dash cams. <laughs> and so, thanks to a million of citizen scientists in Russia, they yeah. can track exactly where that exactly. asteroid was. Yeah. <laughs> And now for things that you can see more frequently or more easily, here's Ian Morrison's with this month's night sky. The night sky for September 2017. Well, the great thing is we don't have to wait quite so long for it to get dark. When it does so, if it's clear, we have a lovely skyscape to observe. High, slightly to the west of south, we have the summer constellations, Cygnus the swan, with the bright star Deneb forming the tail of a swan, and a much fainter lovely double star, Albireo, forming its head. Above Albireo is Vega, the brightest star in Lyra, and below them both is Altair in Aquila, those three bright stars making up the summer triangle. Just up to the left of Altair is a sweet little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin. Moving further over towards the southeast after nightfall, we have the constellation of Pegasus, the upside-down winged horse. The four stars that make up the great square of Pegasus give us a lead as to finding the largest and brightest of the nearby galaxies. M31 in Andromeda. If one starts from the top left star, Alpha Rats of the square, which actually is Alpha Andromedae, moving over to the left, one bright star, turning a little bit to the right, to the next bright star, then sharp right, there's one medium bright star, and the same distance, again, one might see the hazy glow of the Andromeda Nebula. An alternative way of finding it is to look above Andromeda to the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. The right-hand little V actually points down pretty closely towards Andromeda. So that's two ways of finding it. And it is a nice thing to look at with a small telescope or binoculars. And on a really dark, transparent night, you can see it with your eyes. If you actually carry on backwards the same distance below the two stars I mentioned to turn right, you come into the constellation of Triangulum, and there is the galaxy M33. It's face-on and very faint, but with binoculars on a dark, again, transparent night, you have a chance of picking it out. What about the planets? Well, Jupiter is now five months after opposition but it can still be seen very low in the southwestern sky after nightfall, lying at an elevation of some 10 degrees about 45 minutes after sunset. But by month's end, it'll be at just 4 degrees elevation at dusk. With a magnitude of minus 1.7 and an angular size of 31 arc seconds, it will be at its dimmest and smallest during this year's apparition. 
and really is too low for any reasonable telescopic views. At the start of September, Spica, Alpha Virginis, lies some four degrees to its lower left, and Jupiter, which is then moving obviously eastwards, passes some three degrees to the upper right of Spica on September the 11th. Sadly, now moving down towards the lower part of the ecliptic, next year it will only have an elevation of about 25 degrees when due south, and then for the following two years, an elevation of just 18 degrees. So it's not the best time in the next few years, sadly, for observing Jupiter. Well, Saturn came into opposition back on June the 11th, and so will be seen in the southwest as darkness falls. It sets late evening. It shines initially at magnitude plus 0.4, falling to plus 0.5 during the month. It has an angular size of some 16.5 arc seconds. With an angle of 26.8 degrees inclination to the line of sight, the rings are virtually as open as they ever can be. Their maximum tilt at 27 degrees will come in October, the first time since 2002. It is sad that Saturn, now lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, between Sagittarius and Scorpius, only reached an elevation of 17 degrees above the horizon when due south, so hindering our view of this most beautiful planet. Well, Mercury has now become a morning object and will form a very tight grouping with Mars and Regulus in Leo on the morning of the 5th. They will lie about 15 degrees below Venus. Binoculars will be needed to observe them in the bright twilight, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. Rising in elevation during the first part of the month, by the 10th it will have brightened to zero magnitude and lie just half a degree to the lower right of Regulus. Mercury will reach its greatest elongation, some 18 degrees from the Sun, on the 12th, its best morning apparition this year. On the 14th, it lies 11 degrees to the lower left of Venus, whilst before dawn on the 16th, it closes to just 0.3 degrees from Mars. In the final week of September, moving back towards the Sun, it'll be lost in the sun's glare. Well, Mars has also now become a morning object at the start of its new apparition, lying in Leo and still not easily seen in the pre-dawn sky. As I've said, it forms a tight grouping of Mercury and Regulus on the 5th, some 15 degrees to the lower left of Venus. During the month, Mars has a magnitude of 1.8, an angular size of just 3.6 arc seconds, so you could not expect to see any details on its salmon pink surface. As the month progresses, Mars rises higher in the sky before dawn and moves closer to Venus, which is now moving back towards the Sun. Finally, Venus. Well, Venus is visible in the east before dawn this month, rising around two hours before sunrise. Its magnitude remains at minus 3.9, as its angular diameter shrinks from 12.4 to 11.2 arc seconds. However, at the same time, its illuminated phase increases 
from 84 to 91%, which explains why its magnitude doesn't change. Well, finally, what highlights do we have this month? Well, September is a good month to find the globular cluster in Hercules and spot the double-double in Lyra. And on the Night Sky page, just put in Night Sky Jodrell into Google or another search engine, then you will find a chart showing you how to find them. M13 in Hercules is the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky, whilst close to the bright star Vega in Lyra is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, usually called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen. When observed with a telescope and actually good seeing conditions, each of those two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. Well, September is also a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It comes into opposition, that's when it's nearest the Earth, on the 2nd of September. So we'll be well placed to spot this month. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, so Neptune, with a disk just 3.7 arc seconds across, should be easily spotted in binoculars lying in the constellation of Aquarius. And on the night sky page, I've given two charts to help you find its location. As I've mentioned, on September the 5th before dawn, Mars, Mercury and Regulus form a tight grouping, close to Regulus in Leo. Now, a very low eastern horizon will be needed to spot them, probably requiring the use of binoculars. But please do not use them after the sun has risen. And the point about using binoculars is that the magnification they produce reduces the effective brightness of the pre-dawn light, but leaves the brightness of the planets and regulars the same, so they become more obvious. On September the 12th, before dawn, the moon closes onto the Hyades cluster in Taurus. On September the 16th, again before dawn, three planets can be seen below the moon. A thin crescent moon will be seen high above Venus, Mars and Mercury. And lying between Venus and Mercury is the star Regulus in Leo. On September the 26th, after sunset this time, Saturn will be seen below a crescent moon. And on the moon, the nights of the 12th and the 28th of September are good nights to observe the Alpine Valley, which then lies close to the Terminator. You need to have, obviously, a telescope. You'll see, close to the limb, the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, you should see a cleft across them called the Alpine Valley. It is about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. I have a close-up image on the Night Sky page which shows a thin rill running along its length. But that's actually quite a challenge to observe. Over the next two nights following the 28th, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. This is really a very interesting region of the moon. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodian listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are.
Kia and welcome to the September Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. After what felt like a long, cold, wet winter here in Wellington, September marks the start of spring in the Southern Hemisphere. As we head towards the equinox on the 23rd of the month, we see a rapid change in our daylight hours, with our days getting longer and our nights shorter. Equinox means equal night, because we have the same number of hours of daylight and the same number of hours of darkness at this time of year. By the end of September, the sun won't be setting until nearly half past seven. Jupiter is now our evening star, sitting in the west after dark. As we move around on our inside orbit, we're leaving Jupiter behind on the opposite side of the sun. At the beginning of September, it sits just below and to the right of Spica, and sets shortly after 9pm. But it moves slowly towards the top right of Virgo's brightest star over the course of the month. And by the end, both will be setting by the time twilight ends. A thin two-day-old crescent moon sits just below and to the right of Jupiter on the evening of the 22nd. In contrast to last September, when all five naked-eye planets performed a planetary dance, there is only one other planet visible unaided in our evening skies this month. Stunning Saturn sits high in the north as the sun sets. Scorpius Tematawamaui sits to its left, almost vertical, with its tail curling up close to the zenith. Whilst you won't be able to see anything from ground-based telescopes, it's an exciting time for our exploration of Saturn this month. After nearly two decades, including 13 years orbiting the ringed planet, the groundbreaking Cassini spacecraft will complete its grand finale when it plunges into the atmosphere of Saturn on the 16th of September, New Zealand time, sending vital new data to the end. The Cassini-Huygens mission has revolutionised our knowledge and understanding of the planet, its stunning rings and dynamic moons. The mission has revealed the complexity of Saturn's ring system, identified numerous new moons and provided some of the most stunning images of the solar system that we've ever seen. It has found liquid oceans and a thick atmosphere on Titan with conditions that may be similar to early Earth. An exploration of the icy moon Enceladus has revealed a hotspot at the southern pole, icy jets spewing out from the surface and a vast ocean below the ice. Whilst there are only two evening planets you can see with your own eyes, Neptune is also in our evening skies, with Uranus joining it before 10pm. Both can be picked out with binoculars, and you may even notice a greenish colour to Uranus, but Neptune will be indistinguishable from a faint star. Now is the best time to look for the eighth planet, though, as it reaches opposition on the 5th of the month, when it will be directly opposite the sun in the sky and at its highest in the north at midnight. At around this time, the planet will also be at its closest and brightest, shining at magnitude 7.8, and is sat less than a degree just below and to the right of the 3.8 magnitude star Lambda Aquarii, but you'll still probably need a detailed finder chart to spot it. Unfortunately, the full moon passes close to Neptune just after opposition, so it may be easier to find a week or two later. The bright stars Vega and Canopus mark north-south around dusk this month, guiding our eye to the bright band of the Milky Way passing high overhead. Along with the nearby bright stars of Deneb in Cygnus the Swan and Altair in Aquila the Eagle, Vega forms part of the Winter Triangle, as seen here in the Southern Hemisphere. Vega, in the constellation of Lyra, is the fifth brightest star in the sky, and at just 25 light-years away, one of the brightest in our local neighbourhood. 
It is also one of the best studied and is used extensively by astronomers for photometric calibration. It was the first star outside our sun to be photographed as early as 1850. Alta is also easy to spot, lying along the band of the Milky Way, midway up the northern sky after dark. Alta spins at almost 300 kilometers per second, so fast that it is not spherical but flattened at the poles. Deneb is harder to see, just skirting along the horizon from northern parts of the country. Between Vega and Alta is Albareo, or Beta Cygni, the beak star marking the head of the swan. Although it appears as a single star to the naked eye, Albareo is in fact a double star and a lovely sight in a small telescope, or even a good steady pair of binoculars, because of the easily seen contrast in colour between blue and gold components. The two stars are 35 arc seconds apart, meaning they are separated by 60 times the diameter of our solar system, and may take 100,000 years to orbit each other. Albareo is best viewed using low magnification, as the colours stand out more clearly when the stars appear close together. Try defocusing your telescope a little to spread out the star's light, so the colours are easier to see. A similar distance to the other side of Altair is Alpha Capricorni, the third brightest star in the zodiac constellation of Capricorn the Goat, despite having the Alpha designation. Alpha Capricorni is commonly known as Algiedi, meaning the kid, and is another double star, but this time the effect is purely coincidence. Although these stars appear close together, this is just a line of sight effect, with the two components positioned at 109 and 690 light years away. Alpha 2 or Secunda Jedi is the closer and brighter of the two at magnitude 3.58. It is itself a triple star system, with the primary component an evolved G-type star with twice the mass, eight times the radius, and 40 times the luminosity of the Sun. Alpha 1, or Prima Giedi, is a supergiant over five times more distant, but at five times the mass and over a thousand times the luminosity of the Sun, it is only slightly fainter in our skies at magnitude 4.3. Alpha Giedi is also a multiple star in its own right, comprising another evolved G-class star with at least three faint companions nearby. Prima and Secunda are located 6.6 arc minutes apart, around one-fifth the diameter of the full moon, and can be separated fairly easily even with the naked eye. To the southeast of Capricornus is the faint constellation of Pisces Austrinus, the southern fish, with its only bright star Fommelhaut marking the mouth of the fish. Fommelhaut is the 18th brightest star in the night sky, and the only lonely bright star in its vicinity. Along with T.W. Pisces Ostrini and L.P. 87610, Fommelhaut is part of a triple star system, one of the widest triple stars known. The primary Fommelhaut A and secondary T.W. Pisces Ostrini or Fommelhaut B are separated by a couple of degrees on the sky and reality are almost a light year apart, but they are at a similar distance from Earth and co-moving through space. The third component, Fommelhaut C, or LP87610, is a faint red dwarf which is separated even further, some 2.5 light-years from Fommelhaut A and 3.2 light-years from Fommelhaut B. It wasn't until 2013 that Fommelhaut C was found to be part of the system, as it sits over 5 degrees away on the sky. Fommelhaut has been the subject of some controversy over the past few years. In 2008, astronomers identified a massive planet orbiting the star. 
But what was really exciting about this detection was that this planet called Fomalhaut B was the first to be discovered by direct imaging, appearing as a small cluster of pixels in images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Follow-up observations, however, failed to confirm the planet and left many doubting its existence. It took until 2012 before Fomalhaut B was independently detected and confirmed. Its controversial past has earned it the nickname the Zombie Planet, a planet resurrected from the dead. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Well, we have one postcard today. It's uh, a postcard from our own Tom Scrag, who uh, was on his holidays, I think, in Prague. And uh, he sent us a postcard from there uh, with a picture of the astronomical clock in Prague on it. So uh, it's, you know, one of those beautiful old clocks Um those those big old clocks on the on the sides of old buildings with uh, you know lovely intricate mechanics and little figurines that come out and sing and dance on the hour. At least I'm assuming it's one of those. Prague is full of those kinds of things, and this certainly looks like one that has singing and dancing. It's the oldest astronomical clock that's still operational, um, and it was installed in 1410, and it's coming up to its 607th anniversary, uh, which will be happening in October 2017. And Tom hopes that when the Jodcast is that old. Uh, that will be broadcast by subspace around the galaxy. <laughs> and he says, Jod on, Tom Scrag. So yeah, thank you, Tom. He's uh, being a Jodcaster himself. He knows how exciting it is for us to get postcards. So this will go up on the wall next to all the other ones. I need to get my niece to send us posts, or, or nieces. Please do. That would be amazing. Oh my God, definitely do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also need to get my nieces to listen to the Jodcast too. Yes. I got my father and my aunt and my grandmother. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my granny used to listen to everything I did. I ever did. I think she <laughs> she was uh, probably my my biggest fan. <laughs> well, we have two emails. The first one is from Mark Terrington, who says, "Hello, Jodcast. First, thanks very much for doing the cast." I always find it enjoyable and interesting, even if I don't understand it all. Secondly, I think someone might have been referring to the backfire effect towards the end of the discussion about LIGO and scientific method, this being a psychological effect where people become more convinced of mistaken ideas when presented with evidence that contradicts them. There appears to be a new study which suggests that this effect may be more nuanced than originally thought, and they provide a link to www dot brendan b-r-e-n-d-a-n dash nyhan n-y-h-a-n dot com and happy sky watching yeah it's lovely we've got another email from edgar van maren saying dear jodcasters thank you for a wonderfully interesting episode especially the discussion of the danish critique of ligo was great to follow keep it up and never pull an april fool's like that again. Ah, we're still getting feedback about that April Fool's joke. <laughs> um, that that LIGO um, episode also seems to be getting a lot of feedback. I listened to that um, when I was in bed with the cold, and it uh, it was certainly an interesting one. On Facebook, Bob Gagan says, Enjoyable as always, on the Swedish paper in LIGO response, I may have caught word of a possible issue with LIGO data, but not the response. Thanks for the thorough presentation of both. Roger Penrose, Roger Penrose as an eye roll source was also new to me. I think astronomy coverage is usually pretty good in non-astro sources, but not always as timely or broad as it could be. 
Sometimes it's shallow, sometimes it's rhetorical overkill, uh, such as Dennis Overby of New York Times, but generally good. I'm glad we don't see the hyping of new, unreplicated studies in astronomy as often happens in nutrition and the social sciences. Ah, oh, he's right there. Oh my god, so last Friday I was sitting at my desk and I was reading my um, Twitter feed and an article popped up in the Irish Times talking about how Prosecco is very bad for your teeth and nobody should be drinking it. And I thought, what kind of sad person publishes this at five o'clock on a Friday instead of going off to get a glass of Prosecco? But uh, certainly this, uh, you often see things in the news like, um, you know, red wine causes heart disease and then next week it's red wine presents heart disease or, you know, about different foods that you should eat or shouldn't eat. So yeah, I'm glad we don't have that in astronomy. That's a good thing. <laughs> One of the things which I'm sort of conscious of along these lines is that uh, there are some sciences where if uh, uh, they say a result 95% of the time, they yeah. will publish that result. Yeah. In astronomy, people usually talk about sigma or standard deviation. Uh-huh. And so astronomers will typically publish results that are only equivalent to three or five standard deviations well, exactly. away from the mean. Exactly. Um, which is the equivalent of like a one in 10,000 or 0.01% mm-hmm. uh, chance of mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's uh, when, yeah, it may be just because of the way astronomy is developed, but, uh, or just uh, the uh, inherent uh, advantage that astronomy has, whether they aren't trying to deal with people or organisms or other types of relatively messy things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but relatively clean cut stars and galaxies yeah. and are still are gas. Well. <laughs> um, where you don't need to worry about, you know, were the, uh, galaxies smoking when they were forming stars? And, <laughs> and do you need to factor that into your study? You know, it's like uh, the, 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 the galaxies are not going to hide, uh, sort of like, uh, weird facts about their yeah. exercise or lifestyle. Exactly. You. And, you know, different galaxies don't have different personalities per se. <laughs> Or like uh, other, uh, I mean, they do have like myriad of environmental well, factors. All but galaxies are different, but they're not. Um, but di- not different in different in a different way to how all humans are different. I would have said different types of complexity. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so this just in from the Jodcast: galaxies are not like humans. <laughs> But it's, uh, in any case, you can, uh, uh, astronomers tend to publish stuff which tends to be more mm-hmm. reliable from a mathematical standpoint. Well, yeah. Because they can. That's true. <laughs> um, so also on Facebook from Julia Brooker, we had wonderful episode. I love the interview. It answered questions I have long had about Saturn and Jupiter. And the debate was very interesting as well. Oh, well, and thank you for, uh, all of those postcards and emails and Facebook mm. posts. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. At Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can send us posts uh, and the address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Jason McEwen for the interview. The editors were Damian Trin, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Tom Scragg, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time, jot on. on.